Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Hear the word of the Lord. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season, and his leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Pray with me. Our good God, Father, and Savior, we thank you that you have given us this psalm. We thank you that you have promised us blessedness in the blessed man, our Lord Jesus Christ. Help now as we consider your word. Uh, Would you please use our songs and praises and thoughts in all that we do this morning uh, to continue to grow us strong in him and to be the wind by your spirit that blows the chaff from the earth. For your name's sake and your glory, we ask this through Christ our Savior, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Martin Luther once referred to the Psalms as the Bible in miniature. And the Psalms are indeed like a hinge on which the entire door of Scripture turns. You can see that when you pick it up. It's it's right in the middle, canonically speaking. Uh, But more than that, by the Psalms, we have in one place a threshold through which we can walk back and forth from the Old to New Covenant and see the glory of both at one time. And not only that, we can sing the glory of both at one time uh, as we do. That's why it's it's the only book in the New Testament, Colossians 3, Ephesians 5, that we are commanded to repeat. You know the verse, speaking to yourselves in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. That explains partially uh, in its entirety everything we've said here why the hinge of Scripture would be a hymn book. When God was putting the summary of all things in the Bible together, why make it a bunch of songs? Well, think about the nature of music. What happens when you hear a good song? You want to become like the person that you are singing about or the world that you're singing about. You want to inhabit it. Music offers up to our imagination an image that we attempt to imitate. You listen to a a band or a group or someone long enough, what happens? We all see it in uh, high school, uh, middle-aged, not middle-aged children, excuse me, uh, middle school-aged children. What do they do? They begin to take on the appearance, right, of the people that they listen to. Music gives our imagination an image to imitate, and so God has done the same thing. He has given us in the created order, he's made music and specifically given us a music book to become the people that we read about here. And this explains even the entire existence of the Psalms. Uh, Sometimes we have a tendency to think that when David and Asaph and some of the other writers were sitting down to 
write the Psalms, it was a, a, a devotional exercise. They got up and it was a nice cool morning and he walks back onto the uh, palace steps and he has his coffee and his Torah open right on the table. And uh, he just feels inspired and writes something down. In fact, it's, it's different than that. The Psalms are deep meditations on Scripture. What we see here is a product of Deuteronomy 17. In Deuteronomy 17, 18, we're told that the kings of Israel, as part of their very first um, order of business, once they uh, ascend to the throne, the first thing they must do is produce a Levitically licit copy of the Torah. They sit down and begin word for word copying what we would call the first five books. And imagine it this way. If uh, every time we elected a new president, if that president wakes up day one, west wing of the White House, and as soon as he wakes up, he is greeted by a legal aide standing right beside his bed, no breakfast, nothing first, and he is presented with a copy of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. And the third legal document, add your favorite in, whatever that might be. Uh, he's presented with these things, and day one, no signing bills into law, no policy, begin copying the founding documents. That's what this is. Okay? David would be presented with the Torah, and we see David trying to become the ideal king. All of us would agree that we would probably be in a lot better place right, if we actually had to do that, if our presidents followed that example. Right? Uh, but what's going on? Uh, they want the king to become the embodiment of God's word to the people so that when they look at the king, they see, as it were, God presented to them who is so deeply in tune with God's word that he represents Israel's true king, Yahweh himself. We see David taking this a step further because he not only does his job, just copies it down, yeah, yeah, I get the homework done, okay, now I got important king things to do, he takes what he's learning and puts it into music because he wants to become the blessed man that the Torah talks about. So they are inspired by God. The Psalms are inspired through the royal priest David to the royal priestly people of Israel so that they would become a nation of flourishing and lead to the salvation of the earth. Psalm 1, though, especially. If, we, if, if all of that's true about the entire Psalter, it's especially true about Psalm 1. If all the Psalms are a summary of Scripture, Psalm 1 is a summary of the summary. It is an omnibus. It is a tour prophetically and poetically through the entire message of Scripture from beginning to end. And it is even written so that we would embody it. So let's take a look. Uh, brief summary here. Uh, broken down very neatly, verses 1 and 2, we see a comparison that's made. Verses 3 and 4, we see a contrast. And then verses 5 and 6, an outcome. You know the title character. So what's the comparison established? The blessed man versus the wicked man in Psalm 1. The blessed man, uh, this word at the beginning of the psalm, the very first word, in Hebrew it's a plural. You shouldn't be thinking, uh, here's a guy, he has a good day every now and then, he's generally blessed, sometimes he has a hard time. Uh, what's communicated by the word blessed here? Uh, and Matt's done a good job unpacking this. Listen to the, 
Beatitude sermons from Matthew chapter 5 to refresh. You could literally translate this eternal flourishing on the man who uh, does not do certain things and delights in God's word. Eternal flourishing. This eternal flourishing blessed man is contrasted with the wicked man. Notice there's no quality of life assigned to him. Later on, the blessed man is called righteous. The wicked man is just the wicked. That's all he is. He is his evil actions and no more in this psalm. So that's who is compared. And what's compared in Psalm 1 is the way that they have chosen. The path of the wicked and the path of the blessed. Notice the first couple of verses. We have a triplet put together in verse 1. The blessed man faces these certain temptations of the wicked to walk in their way, to stand in their way, and to sit in their seat. These are, uh, you've probably heard before, it's a digression, right? Uh, What the wicked are doing here is leading them further down paths of sinfulness. But it's more than that. Think about the idea of walking in the counsel. You're hearing uh, the advice of these people. The idea here is much more than just You're walking down the road and you hear something you shouldn't. This isn't passive taking in. What the blessed man is tempted to do is linger and to actively listen, to pay attention, to stretch toward what's being offered to him. He is seeking counsel. He's tempted to seek counsel. Second, he's tempted to join the ranks, to stand in the way, to identify and congregate with the wicked. And third, he is tempted to sit in their seat. The wicked have a seat. seat. And this is very key. Uh, Scoffers who balk God's word have a seat. Think about the idea of sitting as it's communicated all through Scripture. Sitting is always the symbol of authority, is it not? Sitting is always, think about it, all the judges and kings of Israel... Where are we always told? What are they doing? Where are they at? Where can you find them? Sitting in the gate. Right? Think about the Pharisees whom Jesus tells the disciples sit in the seat of Moses. They hold the spiritual authority in this realm. Think about James and John. When they desire authority and power in the kingdom, what do they ask Jesus for? To sit at his right hand and left. The disciples will sit on 12 thrones and Jesus himself is now seated in power and glory at the right hand of the Father. The temptation faced by the blessed man that the wicked love is an easy, deceitful path to authority. And this is what the king of Israel must avoid by knowing God's word. So he eschews that path, and instead he departs from the lie of easy authority and does what? He delights in God's word. Now, we have it here in verse 2, his delight is in the law of the Lord. You might have a little footnote uh, beside that, because this is not talking about uh, commandments per se, strictly speaking. The word here is Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, and maybe including some more, uh, depending on what David might have had in mind, but at least the first five books. And the first five books, Genesis through Deuteronomy, more story or more laws? More story. Right? What's being communicated here isn't just the king loves this list of do's and don'ts. The king loves and delights in and turns away from the way of wicked because he trusts in the story of God's redemption is the idea being communicated to us in this word. And in that story of redemption, he 
meditates. Literally, the word here is murmurs. He walks around humming, chanting to himself the words of Yahweh's coming redemption of Israel. You might think of Joshua 1.8 in this context, uh, where the people are told that as they meditate on God's word, they will be led to what? Prosperity and victory in the land as they murmur on God's word. God's word does what else? It mediates his presence. Through God's word, God is present with us. If you didn't believe that, you wouldn't be here today. God's word specifically is mediated to us in the word, Jesus Christ. Where God's word is, God himself is. He's dwelling in God's presence like a Joshua. He's turning away from the wicked. He is leading his people toward what? Verse 3, prosperity. Prosperity. And so by the end of this, uh, the first couple of verses here, we see a king being led to prosperity. And what's compared here is a power struggle between patiently receiving the blessing of prosperity as a king by delighting in God's word and walking in God's way versus getting it by the means of wickedness, sinfulness, and scoffing. It's a power struggle. And we see this even more clearly as we continue on. Verses 3 and 4, look at the contrast that's established. Uh, David here does not fly off on literary flights of fancy okay, with these two similes. The tree and the chaff become the picture of the righteous, blessed man and the wicked man. Uh, this is not trying to obscure David's point about authority, but clarify it. Think about trees and how trees are talked about throughout Scripture. There is a deep, deep connection between trees and human beings from Genesis to Revelation. Think about Adam himself. Where did Adam come from? Did he just spontaneous generation out of nowhere? No. He comes where? From the ground. Taken from what? Dirt. He is first commanded to do what? As a uh, picture of a tree in the garden. To be fruitful. How is he going to be fruitful? He bears seed that's going to pass along his line. All of these associations, Jesus himself is the root or the shoot of Jesse. Jesus is the seed that falls into the earth and dies and springs up as a life-giving tree. He is the vine and we are the branches. Paul in 1 Corinthians calls us God's grove. All through the New Testament, we're planted and rooted and all these things in Christ. Trees were created to picture man. And we are to be like them. But specifically, trees in Scripture have the connotation of kings and kingdoms. We've talked about Adam, Adam being obviously the first son of God, the first king that was put on the earth to be like its tree. Think of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. Uh, in the vision that Daniel has, Nebuchadnezzar is a giant tree that all of the birds of the nations come and make their nests in. But Nebuchadnezzar is, what are we told? A scoffer. He sits in the seat of scoffing. And so what's going to happen? His tree is chopped down and blown away like chaff in Daniel chapter 4. Think of Assyria and its king. In the book of Jonah, the plant pops up and overshadows Jonah, and he gets mad afterward. But that's communicating to us the picture that Assyria is going for a time to overshadow and protect Israel while they're in exile. Think of Israel herself as an olive tree all throughout the prophets or in Romans chapter 11 when Paul says that we have been grafted into the olive tree of Israel 
and her kingdom. And then even the kingdom of God itself in Matthew 13 is a tree that sprouts from the smallest seed that grows into a nation, uh, an inhabitation, uh, yes, for the birds of the nations. All through Scripture, men, kingdoms as trees. This tree, though, is special. It is planted by streams of water. Again, this is sanctuary imagery. Think about all the times that water comes up in the Bible. It's always a place where God dwells. In John chapter 7, Jesus says that His Spirit is the living water in the temple. You have a blessed man, this king, dwelling in a temple place, uh, water coming out of Eden where God would meet with him, water uh, always being established by wells for the patriarchs when God comes to meets with, and meets with them. The tabernacle in the temple where God's spirit dwells has what? Water running out of it and setting in front of it. This is a king in God's temple presence communicated by God's spirit. He's prospering and bearing what? Fruit and foliage. This is uh, evidence of maturity. Foliage is protection, shade. You could sum all this up by thinking uh, fruit and leaves, spiritual and material blessing are just abounding out of this king because he loves God's word and God's presence. And then he is contrasted. Verse 4, the wicked are not so. They are like chaff. Because the wicked is rootless and at a distance from the well-watered sanctuary, because he does not delight in God's word or God's presence, he has nothing to inherit but the wind. And notice something about this wind here in verse 4. This is not any ordinary wind that's being discussed. This is not just a uh, gentle breeze in the afternoon. It's not what is blowing the chaff away it's actually who. In Hebrew and in Greek, the word for spirit is exactly the same as wind. You could literally say the wicked are like chaff that the spirit drives away. You can see this in other parts of your Bible. Uh, think about in John chapter 3 when Jesus says those who are born of the spirit are like wind. You don't know where they're coming from or where they're going. In Acts chapter 2, when uh, the spirit descends on the day of Pentecost, what happens? Sound of a mighty rushing wind comes in. What happens in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sin? God comes down in the spirit of judgment on them, we're told. Uh, sometimes translated as the wind of the day or the cool of the day. In all instances of the judges in the Old Testament, uh, they are rushed upon by the mighty wind of the spirit and then go conquer and blow the chaff out of the promised land. Right? It's not what's blowing the wicked away, but who. And that tells us that the wicked, having neglected God's authority in favor of the world's, the wicked tossed from transgression to transgression in verse 1, are now blown by Yahweh's whirlwind. And see the irony here that's established in these two verses. While the wicked assume that they are ascending to a seat of power by evil, all the while they are actually being led to their destruction. They will be blown away by a simple wind when they think that they are seated, seated in a comfortable spot. While the righteous king is seemingly motionless, meditating, dwelling in God's presence, all the while he is murmuring his word as a silent ascension to uh, an eternal throne. And so we see the outcome listed and in, uh, in discussed in verses 5 and 6. 
the course of life and the last day spell, uh, respectively, estrangement and embrace for the wicked and the righteous. The wicked will perish in judgment, and they will not stand on the last day. You can hear a reference to the resurrection there. They won't participate in that because they have, in their foolishness, eschewed Yahweh's way and chosen their own. But the righteous king and his people, notice that uh, in verse 6, the word righteous now, it's plural. We've moved from a blessed man to a blessed man with a bunch of other people called the righteous. They are known by Yahweh, we are told. They have their, you could translate that, their way lovingly watched over, lovingly guarded because of their righteousness and their love for God and His Word. These will never uh, perish, but they will be led to eternal prosperity and they will have prolonged blessedness always. That's the scene set up for us here. This is the tale and the way of the wicked man and the blessed man. If we were going to put that all together into a summary, you could say something like this. Psalm 1 presents us with and paints us a picture of a blessed king like Joshua who meditates on God's word, who dwells in God's mediated presence like Adam in the garden. He leads his righteous people, those who call him blessed, to prosperity and victory over the unrighteous kingdom of the wicked, both now and forever. So before we get to the anticipated part, we want to know immediately, how do we do this? The question that we have to ask first is not, how do we be blessed men? That's pretty clear. The question in front of us is, who is this blessed man? Who are we looking at in Psalm 1? Who are we to imagine, sing about, and imitate based on this psalm? It's supposed to be Adam in the beginning. Think back. Remember, we said David's meditating on Scripture. This isn't coming out of nowhere. Adam is the very, very first man in Scripture to be called blessed. God creates him and blesses him and then puts him in the garden. Adam then is told that he will eventually uh, be like a tree that's put in front of him. He has total access to a tree of life, but he has no access for the moment. He has to be patient until he can get to the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And by the way, uh, remember that point. That is very key, that idea of patient faith that Adam is supposed to have. That tree was not bad. God doesn't create evil things. In fact, we're told, what? Quite the opposite. Everything is what? Very good at the end of creation. Okay? Uh, God withholding this tree from Adam is much like you or me withholding from our child the ability to uh, take a uh, live wire and, and, or a uh, plug and put it into a socket. Right? What would you tell them, uh, the little kids? You would say, don't touch this. If you ever touch it, you will die, right? Don't touch this tree because the day that you do, you will die, okay? It's the same sort of language. But now what would you think of a 50-year-old man who you, he comes to your house one day and he needs to plug in his phone and says, oh, my dad told me I couldn't plug things in. Could you please plug this in for me? You would think that's a little silly, right? What's going on in the garden is that Adam is waiting for one thing to take his kingly rule, and that's wisdom. Knowledge of good and evil is used all through the Bible, not just in Genesis. Uh, it's used uh, a couple of different places. In Proverbs, 
but especially 2 Samuel 14, 17. David is called a man like the angel of God with knowledge of good and evil. Uh, In 1 Kings 3, Solomon, when he prays, and we know that Solomon is the wisest man, he prays for what? He doesn't pray for wisdom, but for the knowledge of good and evil. God has told us over and over what this means. Adam is supposed to patiently wait for wisdom because he is going to go and take dominion over the world. But first he has to learn patient faith. He has to learn to be in God's presence and trust God's word first. What would you think of a Supreme Court justice who is 10 years of age, right? The ability to rule and make judgments over people, right? Adam is immature. He needs to wait before he's given this sort of wisdom. That's supposed to be Adam waiting for wisdom to take his kingly rule and dominion. But we know that's not what happens. Instead, we know what happens. He's found doing what? Attending to the counsel of the wicked one. Standing in the way of the arch sinner Satan, impatiently grasping at the forbidden fruit in unbelief, tossing off God's word and scoffing at it. He is found finally sitting in the seat. What's the first judgment that he makes? You gave me the woman. You did this, is the first judgment that Adam utters as king. Thus, like chaff, Adam is blown from the garden by the wind of Yahweh in Genesis 3, 8. And there he would have remained as a ruined king had not God been merciful to Adam. Had not God made a promise that there would be another blessed king from his line to come and undo this curse and restore an eternal kingdom of peace. David, for a time, we think he's going to be this blessed man. And we especially think that it's going to be Solomon. David is given this promise by God that one of his sons would be eternally on his throne and leading from Israel the renewal of all things. Solomon even builds a replica of Eden, does he not? We call it the temple. It's decked with images of flowers and trees. It is overlain on the inside with cedar and all sorts of garden imagery is depicted on its walls. God's glory is there as water runs out of the temple. Solomon himself famously asks for wisdom, the knowledge of good and evil, and he's given it. He meditates on God's word and produces a body of literature that we call the Proverbs and the Song of Solomon. Thus, we're told of Solomon's reign in 1 Kings 4, quote, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. You should hear the promise to Abraham in that. Um, they ate and drank and were blessed, like the blessed man of Psalm 1. He had dominion over all, and Judah and Israel lived in safety. From Dan to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. We're left with this ideal picture. Solomon's this new Adam. He's going to do it. But again, we know what happens. In impatience and not believing God's word, even though he had meditated on it so long, he wants more dominion. Judah and Israel is not enough. It's time to get more political friends and allies. So Solomon does one of the chief things that all of Israel, and especially Israel's kings, are forbidden from doing. 
he begins marrying into unbelieving families. He amasses a thousand wives who turn his heart from Yahweh to idolatry. And what happens? The king is the image of the Lord, and so the people follow. And so instead of having this Eden-like land where the king is ruling and people are flourishing, we're told later that Israel has become an anti-Eden, a place of pleasure and power worshipped under every green tree and every high hill. And Israel thus is eventually blown like chaff from the promised land, just like their father, Adam. Of course, Psalm 1 is about the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Jesus not only meditated on God's Word, He was God's Word in flesh. Jesus, though, even as a man, His delight was always to be dwelling and doing the law of the Lord. When He is approached by Satan in the wilderness, three times tempted with exactly the same temptations as Solomon and Adam, take dominion now. Take the, the kingdom and the power and the glory. Just bow down to me. Don't go through the hard part. Don't be patient and faithful. You can have it all right now. And he resists it, even though it's going to mean suffering. And in his final temptation, Jesus again chooses the way of wisdom by offering himself in true love for God and neighbor, laying down his life as the true king was always called to do for his bride. In patient faith, he endured the cross, becoming not only like a tree, but one with a tree, becoming in himself the tree of wisdom, as we heard Darren read this morning from 1 Corinthians. He is the source of all wisdom and life. He is the tree of knowledge and the tree of life. He is its fruit and leaf that we can take from. Though he deserved eternal prosperity, he suffered the fate of the chaff as the true king, being blown from the earth in judgment of sin, but he stood in that judgment like the blessed man, because Yahweh lovingly watched over him. His father was faithful to him, and he raised him now as the eternally blessed king to always sit, and so that he might give us his church, the righteous ones in him part of his blessing, so that we may participate in his wisdom and life and reign. So, what does this teach us? What does that mean for us? What does that mean for Trinity Reformed Church and how we are to act uh, as we go about our daily lives? Well, it means that, number one, our church's blessedness, prosperity, and victory in the blessed man, in our King Jesus, is rooted in patient faith in God's Word. The simple thrust, it's not going to be fancy, it's not going to be complicated. Be like Jesus, don't be like Adam, is the point of Psalm 1. Exercise patient faith in God's Word, and God will give victory over the wicked in His time. There's a few practical things, though. Two things. Number one. Depart from lies. Number two, delight in God's word. Number one, depart from lies. Uh, we are a people who are assailed by the invitations of the wicked every single moment of the day. You carry around the counsels of the wicked in your very pocket. In this room right now are the counsels of the wicked. 
just a click away. The invitation to not only listen to them, but to pay attention, to spend hours watching their videos and learning about them, to stand in their way and then even to sit in their seat to, to make an authoritative declaration along with them that will get you applause and praise in this world and that will get you acclamation and even some kind of feeling of authority over people if you just go along with them. But I suspect that we are people uh, not tempted by the lies that come to us uh, left and right. Lies do come at us left and right every day. I don't think most of us are tempted by lies of left. Okay? I think you know what I mean. We are not tempted to throw off God's law, create our expressive individual selves on our own, to compromise by seeking political power through institutions, that's not where the majority of us in here probably face temptation. We face temptation because we forget that lies of the wicked also come from the right and not just the left. We forget that it is not true that the kingdom will come through philosophic, militaristic, economic, holistic, and domestic power over others. If we can write the correct books, we think, if we can amass enough weapons, if we can control the centers of commerce in our community, if we can have just enough canned things on the shelf and just enough children, we will win. That is where we are tempted. Ask yourself a couple of questions. How did that work out for Israel? How did that work out for Christendom? You could say what? For a while it worked. It, did, it went along just fine for a few thousand years, maybe, give or take. But then what? It crumbled. False means of dominion is what those were. We will not win the world by the world's means and by the means of the wicked. Whether that wicked is the anti-religious left or the quasi-religious right. Neither of them are the path to victory. All of those things that I mentioned above are good and fine. There's nothing wrong with having guns, protecting your family. Okay? There's nothing wrong with the blessings and the prosperity that God gives us and uh, or even our way of thinking. But it is wrong when those fruits of blessedness become our roots of blessedness when we impatiently seek to establish our dominion as a people marked by our political affiliations rather than the fruit of the Spirit. We will end up just as Israel, just as Adam, just as Christendom, blown like chaff by the Spirit's judgment because we have grieved Him. Our answer then, and the good news, is right in front of us. In Psalm 1, we will win. The church will win, okay? Postmillennialism is true. Not what I'm saying, all right? I've still, I, there, I punched my ticket, okay? It's true. It's going to happen. But it will happen through delighting in God's word and God's way. It will come as we know and sing and say and study and embody the truth of Scripture and become the person of Jesus Christ to the world around us. 
We love God's Word and we meditate on God's Word because it is the path and the pattern of our dominion. It teaches us patient faith will win and will have the victory. It teaches us wisdom, the wisdom that knows prayer, work, and self-sacrifice rather than self-assertion is the pathway to victory. Yes, yes. In Revelation 16, there's fiery bowls thrown down in judgment on the earth. We like that picture, don't we? We like to see the fiery bowls spreading over the world. We can't forget, though, what's in those bowls. Not bullets, but prayers. The prayers of the saints are the fire that renews the world. We love to talk about how the Roman Empire was converted to the Holy Roman Empire by the work of the early church. Yes and amen. How? Through many, many years of broken bodies and blood. And not the broken bodies and blood of pagans, but martyrs. Affliction is the engine of dominion that we learn in Scripture. It is Christ crucified that is the path to victory. We learn that through the cross comes the crown. We learn that as we meet together, the body gathered on Sunday, and as we uh, scatter, the body scattered on Monday through Saturday, as we live in homes and have lives that look like Psalm 1, and that sing Psalm 1 and the rest, we will be turned into a people as we sing this psalm that become the breath of the Spirit that Yahweh uses to blow the wicked from the earth. But only as we sing and savor and seek to imitate Jesus himself, our way will be lovingly guarded by Yahweh as the blessed man's was. Psalm 1 is the tune of the blessed triumph of the church, but only for those who have ears to hear and eyes to see that the tree is the pathway to victory. As we depart from lies and delight in God's word and in his way, we will bear fruit and produce leaves for the healing of the nations. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Pray with me. Our good God, Father, and Savior, help us to become people who are marked by love, self-sacrifice, and prayer, and singing. Our worship is warfare, and you are using it to change the world. We thank you for the example and the model of the blessed man, our King, the Lord Jesus. Help us to follow him all the days of our life, for it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.